0: And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls.
1: Thank you, Anna, for reading. we read about a message that just cuts to the heart of people, a message where people receive it. It says 3,000 received that word, and their lives were changed. That, that is a different kind of reaction than normally what a mob or a crowd would have. Normally, a mob or crowd knows what they want, and they're kind of heading that direction, but here they are stopped in their tracks by a message, and I want us to understand what is that kind of message that actually changes people like that? What caused that? This morning, if, if you'll let me, I'd like for us to work back up to the portion of Scripture that Anna just read a few moments ago. I'd like for us to kind of do the backstory and lead up to the reaction, the response by the congregation, the crowd, the multitude that were there that day. So, if we zoom way out, we are in Jerusalem around, let's say, 33 A.D., close to that. Jesus, at this point, has lived, has died, has been buried, and has risen from the dead. And there were eyewitnesses that saw it. Eyewitnesses also saw Jesus ascend to heaven, taken up to heaven in a cloud. So there were those that, that saw that event happen. But before Jesus ascended to heaven, he had told his disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I don't want you to leave until the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you to be my witnesses. And so they were waiting. And we talked about what happened at the end of that wait on the day, what we call Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, tells us they heard a noise like a wind even as they were gathered together in, in a room. And there were tongues of fire that came down. So, this is a miraculous occurrence. This had never happened before. A tongue of fire comes down on them. It says they were filled with the Spirit. They were waiting on the Spirit, and the Spirit comes. And there's physical confirmation of something extraordinary that happens because all the disciples there begin to speak in languages, languages they hadn't studied and they speak in languages, and it's heard in people's native languages, which was significant because gathered in Jerusalem at that time were people from all over the Roman Empire who spoke all kinds of different languages, and they hear the works of God, they hear the story of God in their own language. The scene was so strange. The explanation for some is there has to be intoxicating beverages. That's This kind of stuff doesn't happen, which as you think about it, it's pretty lame explanation. You don't know what's going on, so yeah, someone's drunk, someone's high, you know, something strange has happened. It seems like you could give a lot more thoughtful explanation, but I actually want us to think about, okay, if that's a lame explanation for this miraculous work of God, what is a reasonable one? What, What conclusions are we meant to draw? What is the explanation, and does it even matter? Does it matter for you? Does it matter today still what the explanation for this event that happened a couple thousand years ago? If you are a Christian, I will say it does matter because this event, whether you even know exactly how, this event has formed you. Your walk with Jesus can be understood largely because of this event. As a matter of fact, what you're going to hear is the first words of a witness after the resurrection of Jesus, kind of explaining what the resurrection meant and even what this event meant. So it's significant. But even if you're not yet a Christian, if you wouldn't yet identify yourself in that way, I hope it'd actually be an honor if you would take time to listen this morning, because I think there's a potential of maybe some light bulbs going on and like, oh, that's what that meant. If you have your Bibles still open, and I hope you do keep them in front of you, because we're going to look at several verses. We're going to dig for what is the meaning with Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, languages, wind, sound, mighty works of God. What does all, all of that mean? Let's look at verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. So again, we're going to go back kind of to how it all leads up, and then we'll see the reaction. Verse 14, it says, but Peter, standing with the eleven 11 other apostles, lifts up his voice. Kind of as a spokesman, he addresses them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered or spoken through the prophet Joel, which is a pretty remarkable statement. So Peter is saying to understand what just happened, you need to understand what Joel said. And it's remarkable because Joel gave his prophecy, he gave his words 700, 800 years before this event. So it's like us saying, well, to understand something that happened last Tuesday, you need to go back to 1300. You go, wow, really? And so Peter's going to explain exactly what it meant, but Peter's point is significant. To understand this particular event, you're going to have to understand what God said about it centuries before it happened. And understand that, you have to appreciate, and you actually get a glimpse into something. And that's what I want us to take a glimpse into this morning, and that is a glimpse into the greater plan of God. This is what happens when God's plan becomes clear. I think that's why Peter references Joel, to tell us this is what it looks like when God's plan gets clear. So, actually, what Peter does is he takes some of the exact words that Joel said seven centuries, eight centuries before, and he begins to apply those to what just happened. So verse 17, that's where he starts. There's some of the direct words from Joel chapter 2. It says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. God is giving something. More accurately, He's giving someone, and that is His Holy Spirit. He's pouring it out on all flesh, and His Spirit, it says in verse 17 and 18, is for everyone for everyone, all flesh, both sons and daughters, both male servants and female servants, the young and the old. There's this this message of inclusion. It's for everybody. And a sign of what God is giving is the sign of speech. He says, your your young daughters, your young men, they they will prophesy, they will speak. There's something that God is doing and actually there will be men and women that will be able to give an explanation of this is what God is doing. There will be this inclusion of not just men, but women, not just young, but old. It'll be a wide range. And the giving of the Holy Spirit is also accompanied, it says, by extraordinary wonders and signs. There are elements, there's fire. Look at verse 19 and 20, you see like darkness and smoke and the people living in Jerusalem, as they're even hearing of these signs, they had to think of just a few days before the crucifixion of Jesus, there were these amazing, miraculous signs. Darkness engulfs the the area of Palestine, And, and even on Pentecost Day, there's extraordinary signs, and all this, the goal is for salvation, because verse 21 says, and on that day, all these signs, all of God's work of the Spirit, is so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We may, if you've been around church too long, you probably get just maybe over-familiarized with the word saved, but it does imply you're in danger if God doesn't rescue. Your, your life, your soul is in danger. If everything's all good, you don't need a rescue, but if you're in danger, you do and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those days, those days, Peter is saying, those days have arrived. The days that Joel spoke about, those have arrived. The promised Holy Spirit has come. And then the question you want to ask is, well, I understand that's what Joel was talking about. I understand that the Holy Spirit has come. But what does that have to do with Jesus? Because Joel didn't mention Jesus. So what is the connection to Jesus? We, we can maybe get an understanding of the Holy Spirit coming, but what is the connection to Jesus. What does that have to do anything with Him? And then there's this, I don't know, like a gear shift. I could call it a, a detour, but it's, when it's about Jesus, it's not really a detour because all the Bible's about Jesus. So, it's not so much a detour as a shift in gears to explain exactly who Jesus is. Look at verse 22. So, after, after telling this prophecy of Joel and saying, these days have arrived, he says to the people, men of Israel, hear these words, which should also tell us, like, let's lean in and pay close attention. And then he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, what what he's doing is laying a foundation to get a glimpse of what it looks like when Jesus' identity becomes understandable and undeniable, when we begin to understand who Jesus is, that's what Peter was really, really interested in light of all the fireworks that happened on Pentecost. He wanted to make sure people understood who Jesus is, and his identity is undeniable. So, stay with me, because I remember reading this. So, most of you know, I grew up in church, and so I no shortage of times did I hear the story of Acts chapter 2, and I understood the speaking in tongues. It always seemed strange. I understood it. I understood, like other languages, I understood a lot of it, and then when it got to this portion, it just seemed confusing to me. I didn't quite process, okay, where, where is it going with all these references to Joel, and, and then there's even two other references to Psalms. I, what, What is the logic? What is the explanation? So, if you can Just stay with me as we kind of track what is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? There's a lot of different ways we get at identity. So, in some ways, when you give someone a resume, you are you are giving them at least a limited portion of your identity. You're saying, This is who I am, this is my background, this is where I've come from. Or even social networks where you upload a a photo and you give your education background, or you say, Here's my nationality, here's where I live. All those things are are meant to say, I'm identifying myself. What is Jesus' identity? This man who Peter says, this man from Nazareth, let's understand him more. Because here's his identity. God showed that Jesus is authoritative and accredited. He is validated. And we know that because he did works and signs and wonders. And what Peter says is, you all saw him, Like, you saw these works. You saw these wonders that Jesus did. You know I'm not making these things up. You saw them. That was God showing us He is someone not like us. He is someone that is different. He is someone in a very different category than we are as just just human beings. But this man who did all these wondrous works was crucified, you know, there are different ways to understand Jesus' death. And Peter highlights two important ones. Look at verse 23. I think this is such a critical verse in the Bible. He says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's a divine side he was delivered up. And the day Jesus was crucified, God was not in heaven going, I had no idea this could happen. This was his definite plan. That's what Peter says. And there also is this human side, because while God had this definite plan, it says, you crucified him. He was killed by the hands of lawless men even if you didn't have the hammer in your hand nailing him to the cross, even if you didn't have the spear shoving it into his side, even if you weren't part of the one giving, officially I decree Jesus must face a death sentence, even if you weren't that, you're part of a system, part of a world in which our responsibility is that we crucified Jesus. But that's not where the story stops. Praise God. Verse 24 says, but God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because, because it was not possible, Scripture says, it was not possible for death to hold him. It was not possible for him to be held by death. The interesting choice of words. He says it's actually impossible for that to happen. So, Peter, why is that impossible? Peter then takes us to another Old Testament passage to help us understand why was it impossible That Jesus didn't just stay in a tomb in Jerusalem. He quotes from King David, who wrote a psalm, Psalm 16, which actually Nathan referenced earlier. In Psalm 16, David envisions a person speaking after they have died, but it's a person who did not experience corruption in their body. And it's a person who lives in God's presence filled with joy. Who could that be? Who could David be seeing that actually died but did not see corruption and now is very much alive at the presence of God? This wasn't David. As a matter of fact, David could say, David is pointing, but Peter can say, brothers, I... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And we all right now, we all can go look at his tomb. Peter says he couldn't have just been talking about himself. Is his body experienced corruption. Who could he be talking about? Who was David referring to? It continues on. God had spoken to David in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants. So God had made this promise to David, I'm going to make one of your descendants, one of your great, 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 great grandsons, I'm going to make him a king and he will be a forever king. David, having received that promise in verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The person in Psalm 16 that David is talking about is Jesus, who has now been raised and exalted. And verse 32 says, this Jesus God raised up, and we're all witnesses. We're witnesses to this. It wasn't possible for death to hold him, because our God had another sovereign, mighty, powerful, authoritative plan to raise him up. This was the plan from the beginning, and nothing was going to stop it. This is the the word. This is the explanation. Dots are beginning to be connected if we have a heart, a heart to believe this and eyes to see this. Because Jesus has been raised up, he's been exalted by God, so when we sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, this is an exalted Jesus that we are standing in His presence. He has authority and power, and now He's the giver of the Holy Spirit. What Joel prophesied is that God would give the Spirit, and here we see actually it's God the Son giving the Spirit to people. It says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of His Holy Spirit. He has poured out this. He's poured out what you are seeing and what you are hearing. Jesus pours the Spirit out on those who trust Him. The Lord Jesus is the authorized agent to give us the Spirit. So, Peter is saying everything that you're seeing, everything that you're hearing, it means, it means that Jesus, the exalted Jesus, is at work. Everything that you're hearing, everything that you're seeing, it means that the Holy Spirit is At work. Everything that you are seeing, all these amazing sights and wonders, there to tell you that our God, our Father God, is at work. You kind of come up for air and you kind of take in all of what Peter's saying. And then you realize the Spirit's arrival. We talked about the identity of Jesus. The Spirit's arrival, the Holy Spirit coming, is an indicator that Jesus is Lord, He rules over things. And he's Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the rescuer. And he brings in a new era. And that message stops people in their tracks. Look at verse 36 and verse 37. I think these are some, man, if you got one thing loud and clear, I'd love for you to just completely understand and appreciate what these verses are saying. Because verse 36 says, let all the house of Israel, and we know it's the Israel first to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Here's the identity that God has made him Lord and Christ. He isn't just the mascot, the hero of a religion. He is Lord. He is Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. I think when they heard those words, crucified, when they heard this, what does it say? What happened to them? What happened to their, what they're thinking and what they're feeling? It says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's this moment of recognition. There's this moment of responsibility, personal responsibility. There's this sense of responsibility, of we crucified, this one. And there's a sense of helplessness. Like, what are we going to do? What you see, you get a glimpse into what it looks like when guilt becomes personal. When guilt becomes personal. I think sometimes we're in danger. I know there's a tendency We can present the gospel, we can talk about Christianity in such a way where we're mainly talking about sin and guilt and shame. And and we could miss the whole identity of Jesus as Lord and Christ and all that. But I think there's another danger maybe that we're more susceptible of, and that is probably most would say, I don't have any problem with Jesus and the Lord and Christ and all the God stuff. I don't have any problem with that. But I wonder when the last time it was that we were actually cut to the heart, feeling that guilt is actually personal, that we did something wrong, that we have rebelled. I wonder how long it has been since we realized what we did was against God Almighty, and even more specifically, against Jesus Christ. I wonder if we connect that. Has guilt become personal? Do we even have words like, yeah, I've been cut to the heart recently because of my sin. I've had to think through, like, I am helpless to save myself because of who I am and what I've done. I just don't know that those thoughts or those words come to our mind. I think we're conditioned in the opposite way. We don't think about them. So so let me give you an example. I think I could feel very bad about materialism. Like let's say I just have a materialistic, consumeristic streak in my life and let's say my house is just filled with all sorts of nice things and my credit card statement matches like I just love to buy stuff. And I could say, yeah, I need to work on that and I need to be more generous and less selfish, I guess. I need to... But could it be that when God is looking at that, actually, a more accurate assessment is not just I've got a few bad habits. But I look to my stuff, and I I look to that and say, as long as I have this stuff, I think I'm okay. And Jesus, frankly, you're not enough because I need this stuff. And I'm willing to go into massive debt to acquire this stuff because I just don't think, Jesus, no offense, I just don't know that you're enough. Well, now, when I, when I put it through that lens, I could be cut to the heart to, that I'm looking at the Savior who bled for me saying, I don't think you can help me here. I think I'm going to need some extra help. Could it be that I, I'm prideful and I just kind of go, yeah, I'm just a stubborn, prideful person. You know, that's just our family. That's a, in the genetics. It's just the way it is. I'm, I kind of like to have things my way. But then I, I, I wonder when we're cut to the heart, I wonder if it looks very differently when we begin to realize, I know Jesus told me that I'm to forgive, but frankly, I don't care to. So Jesus, I don't think I'm going to obey you on that. And Jesus, I know you told me not, not to sleep with a person before I'm married, but frankly, I think I'm going to do things my own way. I know you've given me instructions. I just think I know better. Do we see our sin in that light? Do we see our sin in the light so we're in this frenetic pace of life and we got all kinds of things and Jesus has given us a command in this crazy pace, in this crazy world. He's given us an order and he's given us an offer. He's given us an order. Come to me, all who are weary, and he's given us an offer. I will give you rest. And we go, Jesus, I hear that, but I actually, I don't think my soul can be at rest. I don't think that what you've done is enough, so I've got to perform. Because what will be enough is if people like me, and what will be enough if I, if I have him, if I have her, if I have this, if I have that, if my grades are a certain thing, if my grandkids think of me in a certain way, that will be enough. You're almost enough, Jesus. See, I don't know that we realize how personal our guilt is. But I think when we do, when the Lord just opens, like, opens our eyes and we actually get a glimpse on that, then we are cut to the heart. And I'm not saying even, um, you say, well, Curtis, I'm not that emotional. I, I'm not even necessarily talking about emotions. You may not shed a tear and still be humbled by the Lord. You may shed a lot of tears. But what does it look like when you go, what am I going to do? I have blown up my relationship with God. When it clicks, we think, This is just going to be a disaster. But actually, it's the first time there's hope. Because now, when it clicks, when we are cut to the heart, we're dealing with reality. And so we can respond to reality. And you know what Peter says the first words after they ask, What shall we do? It says in verse 38 Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. I'm so glad his first words weren't. Sorry it's too late. There's really no hope. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. The one who you crucified, be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of your sins. Who's doing the forgiving? Jesus will forgive, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will give For the promise is not just for you, but for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He's bearing witness, continuing to exhort them, telling, you're in danger, so be rescued, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now we get a glimpse, not just when guilt becomes personal, but when repentance becomes our response, when repentance becomes our response. That's what Peter said, this is what you must do, you must repent. So you say, what does that mean? What does it mean to Repent. It means turning, so think a 180. Think of going one direction now, reversing course and going the opposite direction. Think of what that means. Think of what it means to rely on lots of things. Think of what it means to to love your sin and to turn from that and love Jesus more. Think of what it means to be proud of all the good things you've done and trot out all your religious accomplishments and turn from all that and say, I'm not trusting in any of that. I'm trusting in Jesus. How do we know that we have come to grips with exactly what Peter's saying? You better save yourselves from this crooked generation. How do we know we've actually come to grips with it? How do we know? Well, I will ask a question. Have you repented? Have you come to -to face-to-face with personal responsibility and made a decisive turn to Jesus? I really didn't ask whether your parents are Christians. I didn't ask whether you would, like, mark a a box on a survey that you're, yeah, I guess I'm kind of a Christian. I'm saying, have you repented? Have you turned to Jesus, turned from your sin, dependence on everything else, and trusting in Him? You see, we may have this idea of repentance all wrong. I think sometimes Christians give the impression, kind of, we just wag our finger at everybody, and we say, we're the ones that are doing right here, and everybody else, all you need to repent. But actually, repentance is something that should land to all of us. We all need to turn It's that there is a call on all of us to turn. So we don't just point outside a nice church building like this and say, yeah, those people out there need to repent. We say, God have mercy. We all need to repent. We all need to turn. In relationships, you notice, you notice. If the relationship really matters to you, you notice the obstacles in between you and a close relationship with that person. And if they really matter to you, you don't want anything in the way. And that's what repentance is. Like you don't want obstacles in the way. You don't want something interfering in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So you turn from that. You want to be his, totally his. It's not a, a paranoia, some guilt-ridden conscience that we have that is a little bit excessive. This is like we want Jesus. So we're turning from everything else, making a decisive turn to him. And repentance isn't something that I I did once, it's something that I'll do all the time. This ought to be a regular part of my life. I'm turning from things and trusting in Jesus. I'm putting my full reliance in Him. And I'll need to do that this week. And there will be other things that seem really attractive and I'll pursue those things like I should not. And the Lord will, in His mercy, correct those things. And I'll have to say, Lord, have mercy. I want to turn from those things. I want to trust in You. How do you know you've come to grips with it? You've repented how else do you know that you've come to grips with this message? A simple question, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Baptism isn't this like the badge you get that says you're better than most people because you've done something religious. No, baptism is just an identification with Jesus. And can I lean in for a second and say I know, I know some of you have resisted showing your allegiance to Jesus, showing that you identify with Jesus. It's not my job nor my desire to pressure anybody. But I do know, Lord willing, we are going to baptize as a church in March. And I would, uh, it would make my day to know some of you heard this message and you say, I want to identify with Jesus. He's changed my life. And I've had doubts and I've had fears and I really don't like public speaking. And I've got all these excuses and I've got all these questions and all these things. I'd love for you to face those fears head on And say, if Jesus wants me to identify with him, then I will gladly do that. Because our whole life is going to be identifying with him. It's not as if, oh yeah, I got baptized once and that means nothing to me now. No, my life is a constant identification with Jesus. One reason I gather here with you is we are identifying ourselves. We are the ones that follow Jesus, we follow his teaching. When he says this, we bow our knee. One of the reasons why we take the Lord's Supper is we say, we identify with Jesus. One reason why we show love for each other is Jesus said, by this, everybody's going to know you're my disciples by the love you have for each other. One of the reasons we speak up when someone says something about our Lord, Jesus Christ, we speak up because we identify with him. We're not ashamed. This is a decision, but it's more than a decision. It's a way of living where you say, I want to repent, I want to identify with Jesus, and I want to walk in the forgiveness of sins. I know there's a moment where you pass from death to life, but frankly, you're going to need the forgiveness of your sins tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. You're going to need this, kind of the rhythms of grace that you see here. You're going to need this message that Peter was talking. You're going to need that every day you meet Jesus and everything's made new. The Holy Spirit receiving the Holy Spirit, that wasn't just a, well, that was interesting, kind of one-time event. But Actually, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and guides and also produces fruit. So you will need the Holy Spirit the rest of your lives to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You're going to need the Holy Spirit working in you. Does any of that, does any of that sound like anything you've experienced? Does this sound like your day-to-day? Repentance, identification with Jesus, forgiveness, walking in the Spirit. Do these rhythms display themselves anywhere in your life? If they don't, what are you going to do about that? Could you talk to someone about that? Could you talk to the Lord about that? Could you go public with even your questions, your doubts, or maybe your decision? I love Acts 2.41. It's kind of in summary to what all Peter had been saying. It says, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You know, the the number doesn't matter to me so much this morning of how many might be added to the Lord but I'll tell you what really, really matters to me today, and that is your response. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do? What will you do with his commands? What will you do with his offer? I have have nothing to add to that offer. That offer can, can, can change your life. That offer of grace and forgiveness could start something today that will be enjoyed for eternity future. And my goodness, my prayer is that that wouldn't be distant from you, but that you would respond today, that you would talk to someone today before you even left. I'd like to pray for all of us to live in light of this passage in Acts 2. Can I do that? Our Father, thank you for your words. I pray they're loud and clear to our hearts, and where you are cutting our hearts today, maybe with our own guilt and our own shame, I thank you that what you cut, you can heal, and we don't want to settle for anything less than true grace coming. We don't want to tell ourselves it's okay when it's not, so Lord, help us discern what's going on in our hearts right now and give us boldness and courage to take decisive steps toward you. May we live our lives filled with the Spirit, filled with experiences of your grace. Thank you for your love and your kindness to us. And whatever else is in our mind today, I pray your plan and your love would be the first and foremost rescue this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.